I've been, uh, I've been studying, uh, looking at, examining uh, phobias uh, because I know that there are many different kinds of phobias that uh, are represented here in this room. And so what I thought we would do for fun is I thought I could uh, put up a phobia and then we could take some stabs, some guesses at what this phobia might be. And then we can uh, survey the crowd to see if anyone actually is fearful of said phobia. So does everyone understand the playing rules here? Okay. Uh, I, I will uh, go ahead and admit to you, I'm not going to be able to pronounce all of these, so please be patient with me. Let's start here with this phobia, okay? Uh, Alectorophobia. Okay, any guesses here of alectorophobia here? Electricity. Great guess. You are wrong. Anyone else? Any other thoughts here? Okay, well, interesting, interestingly enough, this phobia, next slide, is the fear of chickens, okay? Uh, it is the fear of chickens, and um, so I, I'm, just, I'm just curious. Let's take a moment here in vulnerability. Uh, anyone here willing to admit that you are, in fact, fearful of chickens? Anyone here? Okay, we have one person. What Did this birth out of something as a child? Like, were you pecked or something? Like, what happened? Your friend had a bird that attacked your face. Was that bird a chicken? Yes. Oh, it was a chicken. Okay. I'm sorry about that. Okay. Well, I, we'll pray over you later and, you know, I think, I think you'll find. Yeah, it's good. All right. How about, how about this next one? Okay. Uh, side and lobophobia. Not bad. Not bad. Side and lobophobia. Okay. Any guesses here at this phobia? Thoughts here? Anyone? Earlobes. Okay. Also a phenomenal guess. It's, it's an interaction between you and I at this point, okay? Uh, you are wrong again now, 0 for 2. Okay, I do appreciate. Uh, next slide. This fear is actually the fear of cotton balls. So, um, any... <laughs> You'd be surprised, right? Uh, we, who would have thought we would have had someone fearful of chickens, okay? But sure enough. So, how many, uh, how many of you here afraid of cotton balls? Any fear cotton balls? No. Okay. And my guess is even if you were, you might not admit it at this point. Can we just go ahead and agree with this one? All right. How about this one? Next slide. Um, Now, uh, hold on. Fear of long words is exactly right. Who got that? This is a real phobia and it is seriously a fear of long words. I, there's no way I could pronounce this, so I asked, uh, I asked Google to. So uh, let's hear how this is pronounced here. Next slide, just so we can get a... Hippopotamonstrosis quipidaliophobia. Okay, thank you. Uh, how did you know that? Was that a pure random guess? You seriously knew that, though? Okay, all right, just go with it, even if you didn't. Now's your, now's your moment, and I'm really surprised you didn't say anything. All right, so uh, how about this one? This one is... Uh, Umphalophobia. Umphalophobia. Any, any guesses here? Okay. Fear of midgets? No. Um, no, it's not at all. Uh, any guesses, brother? Elephants, close, but no cigar. This is, uh, finally, this is, the, this is the fear of belly buttons, okay? And I'm just going to, I'm not going to show you a picture, okay? Because it just, it would just get awkward, all right? Uh, It would get awkward. But uh, I I do have one more for you that I don't want anyone to guess. I just want to show you this one. Next slide here. 
Uh, agliophobia uh, is, um, is the fear of pain. And, um, you know, instantly it, it feels as though it kind of like sucks the air out of the room. Oh, so we're going there now, right? Um, but it's, it's something that I believe resoundly in my heart. Though uh, you may not be um, on some sort of scale on the fear of pain. Like I naturally see this in my children. It's like, it's like when kids come out of the womb, there's like something innately in them that just is, is fearful of pain. I mean, my, my kids hate pain. And it is so frustrating, uh, especially for a dad of two boys. I, I can deal with uh, my daughter fearing pain, okay? And I, I like love her and, and coddle her and hold her when she's hurt. My boys, not so much, right? Like when my boys are experiencing pain, like I really at times struggle because I'm not so sure if they're, if they're really hurting or not, you know, like, cause I've seen them cry wolf so many times, you know, they'll take a bat and like, you know, throw it across one another's face. And, you know, one day that seems to hurt. And then the other day it doesn't. So I'm not so sure. Right. And, and here's what I do know though. I do know that my tendency is just to tell them to toughen up. But I know now after a ton of uh, experiments that that does not work at all. Okay. But I want to propose to you that the majority of us in this room are unbelievably fearful of pain. And the impact and the depth and the weight of what that fear is causing, tonight I want to examine with you. How much does the fear of pain impact our experience, our encounters, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with others? Now, that's important. It's also important for you to understand where we've been. So next slide. This map helps us see. Here's what's happened. The nation of Israel has traveled a long ways. After 430 years of slavery in Egypt, 40 more years in the wilderness, they've seen an entire generation of people die off. They then cross the Jordan River just to the left of that red box, and they begin conquering kings and taking possession of an inherited land. To be exact, they conquer 31 kings, does Joshua and the army of Israel. And then what we saw last week is people start to take pieces of their inheritance, including two and a half tribes that are in that red square. These two and a half tribes make a negotiation with Moses and even the Lord uh, back long ago that they wanted to inhabit this land instead of the land on the other side of the Jordan because it was, uh, as they say, better for raising cattle. And so they do it. They are now sent out from the nation of Israel to inhabit that land, but all of a sudden tonight, drama begins to occur. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to watch this dramatic scene in Joshua chapter 22. A couple weeks ago, we studied nine uh, chapters. Last week, nine verses uh, Tonight, just a couple more verses, so we're going to continue to slow the pace down. Joshua chapter 22, these three, uh, two and a half tribes now have been sent out. Let's start here in verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh 
these two and a half tribes built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now, I tried to do as much research here as I could on the word imposing, and as you can imagine, it means massive, gigantic, huge. Okay, so, so they leave. They're sent out by Joshua. Remember, Joshua said, go. And now we see, not commanded by God, Joshua, or any other leader, their first reaction is to build this, this massive altar. I'll even say this very questionable altar. Okay. Now, what happens is, when you build something like this, uh, a part of a nation that certainly has used altars for worship, and you're building it apart from now the, the mother tribes, we could say, it's going to arise many questions. And so I want to show you just a few questions that certainly arose in me as we look at this questionable altar. The first question is this, how will the rest of the tribes respond, right? So if they were to hear, if they were to find out that these two and a half tribes build this monstrosity of an altar, what is going to be their natural first response? I think this next question is very interesting. Is the altar inherently sinful? Have they done something wrong? Is this against God's will? Again, we didn't see Joshua command the building. Uh, We also didn't see some sort of other leader who was of those tribes that said, hey, now we shall build an altar. So is it sinful? The third question from the questionable altar, will this decision bring more of God's wrath on the nation of Israel? And we've certainly seen a ton of God's wrath on the nation of Israel. As I said, an entire generation dying in the wilderness. Recently, we've seen a ton of mercy. But but what's going to happen? These three questions. Now let's dive in and begin to answer these questions. Let's start in verse 11. And the people of Israel heard it said, they heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the Hap tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So they heard it said in verse 12, and when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Okay. So as we can see, this uh, altar, which is certainly questionable, has arisen a very hostile response, okay? Now, this begs all sorts of, of observations, right? Like, what in the world is going on now? Like, why is, why is this their response? So as we're journeying through this very, very dramatic story, I just, next slide, I want to make some very clear observations from Israel's response. So First, from these two verses, three, they base their reaction on hearing. So somehow they've heard. We don't know how, but what we do know, because it's mentioned in both verse 11 and verse 12, everything that they're feeling inside in response to this decision to build this altar, okay, everything they're feeling is based on hearing. They haven't seen it. They haven't experienced it. They You know, they're not coming back with pictures or Polaroids. All they do is hear it, okay? Next slide, another observation I want to make is what they hear 
causes them to believe that these actions are sinful. They haven't seen it. They haven't taken it in for themselves. They've just heard, hey, did you guys hear that you know, this massive altar is built right here on the precipice of Canaan and these other lands? And they instantly think that it's sinful, okay? Now, this is massive. Start talking these observations away. How about number three? Their first response is not to send a delegation. Their first response isn't, I wish them well. Their first response is to make war, right? Now, I think some of you would be like, well, maybe that's just become like kind of like a reflex reaction for the nation of Israel at this point, right? I mean, they, they've certainly fought a lot of wars, right? And so the fact that they would hear of an altar, think that it's sinful, and then all of a sudden say, all right, rally the troops, it's time to take some people down, it seems like, well, yeah, but that's just kind of par for the course. I mean, they've taken down 31 kings and inherited a whole bunch of land. But I think what you can begin to see in their response is that maybe, just maybe, there's a whole lot of similarity between you and I and this response from the nation of Israel. But before we go too far, let's continue to take this story in. So here we go, verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs. And so though they might want to make war, here we do see some sort of delegation, some sort of reconnaissance mission, if you will, okay? Ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, middle verse 14, Every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Verse 15. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, which if you've been enjoying the last couple chapters, like this is repeated, these two and a half tribes, like 65 times, okay? Just over and over and over in case we didn't understand the school of redundancy school. And the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And here's what they say. They said to them, verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Look at this. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Like this is hefty, hefty stuff. Again, they've they've just heard of it. They're incited to make war. They gather to make war. And then they send a reconnaissance delegation, but it doesn't seem so reconnaissancing, right? Like, they just start making statements. Okay, you're in rebellion. What has caused this breach of faith, using this military term to talk about a lackluster approach to God? And so let's make, next slide, this observation their questions aren't questions at all. They're, they're judgments. Uh, we know this all too well, don't we? How many times uh, have you been in a marriage relationship where you're like, that's not a question, is it? Right? Hey, honey, have you worked out the last couple of weeks? Right? I, I hear every once in a while, you know, and I'm like, oh, is that just a nice question? Right? Or, 
Is that some, like, is, are you trying to say something there, right? Hey, when was the last time you've been to the gym, Mark, you know? Oh, you know, is this just banter? Are we having a nice conversation? Or is there something else going on here, right? It's unbelievable how, how many of our questions that we kind of like wrap as Christmas presents, but when you open them, one big hefty judgment. So the recon mission is seemingly just a chance for them to lay down some judgments, bearing in mind they haven't seen the altar. The delegation is now having some interaction but I think you'd like to see with me that their first question isn't, so hey, could, could someone please explain to us what this altar is? Like the priest Phineas, like he doesn't just instantly ask, hey, we just want to try to understand. We're not so sure why you would build such a massive altar when like the Lord has made clear that we worship him only and we have altars of sacrifice. Like, like what are you trying to do here? They don't do that. Instead, they say, what is this breach of faith? What is this rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17 is telling. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord. So here we go. Now we're digging up some luggage from the past. Okay? Verse 18 that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Now, uh, Peor is a very, very interesting moment in Scripture. And Phineas, this priest that is a character in our story tonight, is a character way back when in Numbers chapter 25. So, just for fun, I want to show you guys what's happening in Numbers 25. When Israel lived in Shittim many years ago, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I think you can agree with me. Okay, if we were to take some notes from Numbers 25, things aren't great, okay? They've made some poor decisions. They're worshiping false gods. The plague comes on the nation of Israel, and Numbers 25 tells us that 24,000 people die. So now do you see years later what's happening? Well, Phineas, interestingly enough, later in this chapter, is the one to end the plague. Pleads to the Lord, takes some action, and the plague is over. So now this same character, this same priest, Phineas, is coming at this nation saying, listen, haven't we learned our lesson? Like, why are you in rebellion? The Lord's anger is going to burn hot against us just like it did back then. Again, he hasn't asked any questions yet. There's not been any understanding of the people's heart. There's not been a conversation. No one's drinking coffee, okay? This is like heavy, heavy Judgment. Now, next slide, I want to make this observation. The past plays into their assumptions. Now, things just got very real there for a second, didn't it? So let me ask you, how often would you say your past plays into your assumptions about your interactions with others? Because of this, 
then now in this moment, this must be true. Because this is how that person talked to me and this is what they meant. Now because you said that same phrase, this is what you must mean too. Because I felt this way back here, now in a similar situation and scenario, I must be experiencing the same kind of thing, right? And in so doing, all of a sudden, this priest, who was a big part of watching the death and the chaos and the carnage, now brings this up again, 24,000 deaths. What in the world are you doing, he says, verse 19. Look at this. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, this is an interesting turn of events, Pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Now there's a lot of things that he says in that statement. You guys can just come back over. You don't have to cross the Jordan. Listen, if naughty things are happening on that side of the River Jordan, then just just stay with us. Really, though, ultimately, especially from the last verse we just read, concerned about the wrath of God heaping on not just these two and a half tribes, but who? Come on. Them. The impact of them. So, next slide. How about this? Number six in our observations. They are willing to sacrifice to make it right. Now, what's the sacrifice? What's the sacrifice? Come on. Yeah, it's land, right? You guys can come back over. You're many. Okay, you guys were going to have your own, you know, camps and tents. Remember last week, go make your tents, Joshua said. But now you can make your tents here on our land. You can take possession of our land, not just you, but your livestock as well. So they're willing to make some sacrifices to make it right. Now, verse 20 says this. Did not, whoa, whoa, what's the word there? You guys remember this? Did not Achan, okay? If the past story of Peor wasn't enough, how about our good buddy Achan, right? Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So when you look at, uh, next slide, when you look at all of these observations from these verses about how the nation of Israel responds to the possible sin of their brothers. Now, if you just started to flip the script a little bit, and it wasn't the nation of Israel, and it wasn't these two and a half tribes, but it was me and you, and our approach to calling out the sin of our brothers and sisters, and then if just for a second you started to look at those observations again, things get very, very interesting, don't they? In other words, I'm I'm wondering how many times that you have based your reaction about the sin of your brother and sister on hearing. You didn't see it for yourself. You didn't understandably, uh, you know, tangibly hold it. You heard it. In fact, sometimes you were like a sixth or seventh source. If you've ever seen the VeggieTales rumor weed, you understand what I'm saying, right? It's like this long string of communication. Uh, I'm just wondering, okay, how quickly by hearing 
you instantly jump to believe without any recon or conversation that those actions, motives, lifestyle is sinful. Again, you haven't talked to the person yet. There's been no recon, no conversation. I'm just, just curious, just wondering. I'm wondering sometimes if your first response is to make war. Maybe one of the most damaging things in the whole understanding of all just say American Christianity has been people who maybe have erred or not erred, but have been met with a legalistic make war, chop your head off, no grace approach. And some of you are in this room. In fact, the majority of people that I talked to that were burnt or hurt by the church growing up, as they would say in their testimony, you know what the source of that hurt is? That exact thing right there. I was struggling, I was battling, didn't know what to do, and then all of a sudden, this person, that person, this group of people attacked me. They came at me. They said the word love, they used the word grace, but in reality, I felt like it was a bat with stakes on it. I'm just asking, how many times in response to the sin of your brothers and sisters has it been, rally the troops! Let's spread the information so that everyone else can be enticed and let's go to war, everybody. Put the guns on their shoulders because we got some killing to do. Because as we would justify it, there's some people making a mockery of the gospel. And so let's go at them then. I'm wondering how many, how many of you have questioned people, but the questions, <laughs> come on, they haven't been questions at all, Right? People could see right through your inquisition and could tell immediately that you not just had an agenda, but you had already come to the conclusion. If you're on the receiving end of that, you know how much you hate that when people ask you questions and they've already come to the conclusion? Then why in the world do we do it so much? I'm wondering how many of you, again, the past playing into the assumptions of the person's struggle. And I'm wondering then how much you're willing to sacrifice for the understanding of the whole. So all of that to say, I want to make a very bold statement, and this will guide the rest of our evening. Let's say it this way. One of the most difficult pieces of being in the body of Christ is challenging the sin of others and receiving rebuke on our own sin, and the church said, come on, amen, man. This is the most difficult piece about being in the body of Christ and journeying with others towards Jesus. You working through your fear, causing pain, inciting pain, or even just the pain of maybe the loss of relationship and challenging the sin of others. And certainly on the receiving end, the most difficult thing in humility to receive rebuke. And because of situations like what we just saw, we have a whole lot of baggage. But there's more baggage that every single one of us are born into, and I want to help you understand it. Now, check this out. So, um, how many of you guys have a Starbucks rewards card? Just Okay, how many of you guys? Come on, it's okay. One, two, skip a few, 99, 100. All right. 
Um, in 1981, 1981, American Airlines came out with the very, very first as they call AA Advantage, or Frequent Flyer Plan. Okay. Now they have 100 million people on that reward program. What, you've, uh, what, you're, what you found and what you're finding right now is it's very, very difficult to find a store that does not have a loyalty initiative. Have you seen this? I mean, one of my favorite places to go is the AMC in St. Charles. Anyone else? Oh my goodness, Right? I mean, that popcorn that you get to pour on the popcorn yourself, you know? I look over one day, and Dawson has his mouth under the spigot, you know? And instead of chastising him, I say, well done, son, right? You've learned well, young Jedi, right? AMC, rewards program, okay? Walgreens, rewards program. Holler if you hear me, Target, rewards program. And Heidi, um, since we did a poor job interacting last week, there's like something you're involved in that like gains you points for going to Target. Like, what's that program called? It's the red card. Okay. Cartwheel. Okay. And it's kind of a big deal, right? Because every day it seems like Heidi comes home, she's like, guess how many more points I have on my card? I'm like, I don't know that we're celebrating that, right? Um, <laughs> Listen. Ten years ago, the loyalty programs were reserved for the airlines and a few hotels. Now an entire culture, listen, of affirmation. There's something so powerful when you get to see the accumulation and you receive the VIP status and you get to sit in first class And you get to walk in first to the movie. And you get some free stuff back. I want to propose to you that we are obsessed with affirmation. Uh, You guys know that in our educational system right now, there's certainly a bent towards not winners or losers at all, but everyone wins. Everyone needs to be affirmed. Why? Because ultimately the best thing that can happen to a young child is if their self-esteem is stoked and coddled only furthering this culture of affirmation that we exist in. Now, is it possible that we are so addicted, so hooked, so drawn to affirmation that the thought, the very thought of challenging someone, of going against the grain, of making some observations about a brother or sister that we care about, about you know stepping to them and, and sharing. Listen, I, I've seen this in your life. We have grown so fearful of because we don't want to break the trend of affirmation. I don't want to go against the grain. I'm not interested in swimming upstream. It's much easier just to swim with everyone else. So that's right. Just do whatever you want, church. Just head in whatever path and live however it is that you want. And so we find ourselves not going against the world at all, but just right along with them. Affirmation after affirmation, encouragement after encouragement, often false encouragement, often lies that we've made up just to continue to live in the masquerade that often we do, that everything is just fine. But in reality, 
you know your life and you know the lives of some of those around you and you know it's not fine at all. Now, when you start digging and unearthing in this topic, all of a sudden some incredible truth starts coming out. Next slide. I want to give you tonight from the scripture, not from self-help or idealism, I want to give you some, these aren't all, but some of the biblical principles of rebuking sin. What I'm saying is Joshua 22 didn't give us a very, very helpful litmus test for here's how you rebuke sin. It actually, I believe, gave us a great understanding of how not to. Okay. So let's step back. Let's look at the text. And let's understand how maybe together we can rebuke sin in a more biblically healthy way. Here we go. Galatians 6. Brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, that's sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I studied every passage in the New Testament in particular that talked about calling your brothers or sisters out in sin, and it's interesting how much this also keep watch on yourself comes up. But the spirit of gentleness, the, if you've seen or watch or notice any transgression in your brother or sister. So first, I think we should de- define sin. You guys with me? Because I know for sure some of you guys are here and you're like, okay, I, I've been around the church a little bit and I, I've heard the word sin and I can make some assumptions about what it means, but help me understand it. Uh, the other night I was uh, doing family worship with our, our kids and I was helping them understand sin and repentance. And so I just wrote the word sin on this uh, yellow uh, piece of cardboard paper. And I said, all right, kids, like, just, just tell me, what is sin? And it was really interesting to see how quickly they said, it's when we disobey God. And then it was amazing to see how quickly I said, oh, did you guys know that scripture also makes clear that you're to obey your parents? And so when you don't obey your parents, you're therefore not obeying God. Therefore, that makes that sinful, right? We all took a deep breath and moved on. But, you know, like, like that's what sin is, right? Sin is this, this disobedience of God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is, I I know you've commanded this. I know you've structured life in this way. I know you've invited me in, but I'm going to do my own thing. That's what sin is. So if you see any disobedience of God and others, Galatians 6 says, come with a spirit of gentleness. Also, similarly on this point, next slide in Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So let's take both of those very, very clear passages and make a statement in principle. Number one, next slide. With a spirit of gentleness, speak the truth in love. Now, this begins to come at our motive. I was trying to think today of all of the motives that I have had before in sharing hard truth with my brothers or sisters. And I would say that sometimes my motives have been pure, God's glory, their sanctification, the health within the body of Christ, their obedience of God. 
But quite honestly, there have been other times where my motives have not been pure, where I've been angry, where I've been fueled by vengeance. Listen, where I've been dominated by trying to humiliate. And again, some of you have been on the receiving end of this from others, and it has damaged you so deeply. I cannot take away the wounds of your past where people or a church or a group haven't restored you in gentleness and spoke the truth in love. I can't make that go away. But I do know this. The Lord is a healing God, is a comforting God, is a merciful and gracious God. And so don't let for a second, please understand how difficult I know this will be to hear. Please don't let his people or people who have been imposters shape your view of him. Just rest in him. Okay. And so the command is that when we see a transgression in a brother or sister that our, our motive, our spirit, our heart in it is gentleness and we speak that truth in love. But I want to make sure that you see the word speak. Take note of that. We still speak. Are you guys with me? It's going to drive much of our further conversation. Number two, some biblical principles. I want you to see this text, 2 Timothy verse 3. In chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, the word, for teaching, for what's the word there? Come on. For proof, for what else? For correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's not stray. Let's not think something else. Let's just go ahead and get to a very, very clear principle. Number two, check this out. Next slide. Please see this. God's word must drive correction, not our feelings or assumptions. Our feelings betray us. How you feel in a situation, how you feel about a person, there are so many variables in all of those feelings. And when our feelings and therefore our assumptions drive those moments, that has been a massive source, again, of pain and hurt in all of you, both on the giving and receiving end of these conversations. God's word must drive it. Now, let's talk about that for a second. God's word is either a book of life or a book of hatred. And again, I'm ashamed to say that many have used God's word towards you as some slap in the face. They've taken the words, it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and they have tried to slice and dice you, believing that it's their work to convict. But I want to make clear, we all understand, God saves and God sanctifies. And so in none of the biblical rebuking is it, if you don't, rebuke your brother or sister, then it's all over. No, we're still trusting and resting in God, and it is not our ability to take God's word, use passages for our advantage, and hope that people get sliced up. Oh yeah, well in the scripture it says, oh yeah, well in the Bible it says. Think of how much damage has been done with that sort of non-loving tone, with that sort of anger in hurt. Oh, yeah, well, the Bible says, well, you, you should read your Bible more. Often speaking of people who haven't read the Bible ever, the believers use this tone with non-believers. Oh, yeah, well, if you looked in the Scripture, 
And we're asking non-believers to read the word? And then it transfers over to our interactions with other believers. One of our first, first things we do in sin, oh yeah, well in so-and-so passage, in so-and-so verse, if you would just open your stinking eyes and read it, then maybe all of a sudden some, some progress could be made. Instead, like I long for in my family, grabbing my children's hand. Listen, kids. Scripture is very clear about what it means to follow him about what it means to die to yourself and to give up everything for him over and over, kids. And I want you to say that all of those words from the Lord are loving. Every single time he says die to himself, it's because he knows that that will be to your joy. Kids, every time you run away from rebellion and sin and cling to him, oh, the gift of resting in him. And so, yeah, we can and must use God's word. It is the means of correction, not our feelings or assumptions. But please do not misuse God's word that all of a sudden makes you the author of it. You guys hear me? We're not the author of it. We're the messengers, the ambassadors. Oh, it's written on our hearts. But we did not author this book. Are we together in that church? So don't for a second place yourself as the one who penned it. Instead, over and over and over, there will never be one moment in your life where you will correct or rebuke someone and you will have lived it perfectly. And so then it puts us all on the same playing field in Christ, which has tremendous power. The third principle I want to look at comes from Matthew chapter 18 probably the most famous text describing specifically when others have sinned against us. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and what? You and him alone. It's amazing to me, um, certainly I've known this passage for a long time, how much of a reminder I need and many of you need right now. We can preach it, teach it, talk about it all day long. It seems like our natural tendency is when someone has wronged us, we want to build a camp. Oh, you're with me, right? You believe that they wronged me, right? We're together? Okay, hug it out. Hey, so-and-so, did you hear what so-and-so did to me? Yeah. Are, you believe my side, right? They're in the wrong, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Can anyone make this passage say anything else? Can you make it say anything else? If your brother sins against you, it doesn't say go and gather a crowd. It doesn't say go and gossip. It doesn't say go and make sure that everyone understands now that that person who did that wrong needs to be judged and oscillate. Like, no, like none of that. Go and tell them. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, a very clear path. And finally, bring the church in, the scripture goes on to say. So let's make this note here uh, from this beautiful passage in Matthew 18. The nation of Israel, so far in our story, have given this people no chance to repent, no chance to explain, no chance to share their heart. Can I ask you guys something? What if... We cared enough about our brothers or sisters that we actually gave them a chance to repent. 
in that same uh, story uh, that I was sharing, I was teaching my kids about repentance. And so uh, here's what I did. I told Dawson, I said, hey, Dawson, I want you to start walking to the door. And so he started walking to the door, and then I said, stop. And he, you know, everyone was kind of giggling, right? Like, ha that's funny, right? And then I was like, turn around, Dawson. And so he like marches back to the table. And I said, all right, all right, Dawson, walk to the door again. And then I was like, stop, you know, and he was almost there. And he's like, you know, already starting to kind of peek. Turn around, Dawson, right? That's good. And so we did this about six or seven times, right? So now at this point, he's running laps, okay? And then I say, in tears, I say, son, listen, that door is gossip, and that door is anger, and that door is hatred, and that door is lust, and that door is selfishness, and that door is pursuing the things that will, you think, make you the most valuable. And I got to look at my kids and tell my kids what Romans chapter 2 says. I said, Dawson, walk again to the door. And I said, stop. And I said, turn. And I said, kids, I want you to understand something. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God that allows you to stop in your tracks going after your sin, longing for your indulgence, pursuing your lusts, feeding from the faucet of your flesh. It's the kindness of God that says, no, 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 there is another way, kids. And I'm like weeping. This yellow piece of paper, like droplets of my tears, as I'm describing the beauty of the kindness of God that would allow us to come back to his arms. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, kids. And so I'm asking then, do you see how often we negate the opportunity to allow our brother and sister to experience the kindness of God when we don't go to them and show them their sin. Stealing it away. No, I I see this sin. I see this transgression. I, I can watch it in their life. But you know what? I'm just going to ignore it. I'm too fearful. I've been burned in the past. I've seen where it's gotten me. I've watched what it did to that relationship. I'm done. There's too much hypocrisy in my heart. I fear them calling it back on me. Well, what about your life? And so instead, ignore, ignore, ignore. And then the church finds itself seeing clearly darkness. Seeing people walk to the door. You watch your brothers and sisters. You see them walking towards it and you're crippled with fear. I'm crippled with fear when it's the kindness of God that would stir their hearts and allow them to receive grace and mercy and in our fear silenced not caring about the sanctification or the growth of our brothers and sisters at all instead caring more about our dominating fear and so the spirit prompts us 
and we push it down. That one time that we said that, that one sin that we could see in someone and they responded with hatred and judgment. If you, led by the Spirit of God, come to your brother and sister in gentleness and speak the truth in love with a motive of their growth, their response is on them. We cannot let any longer the hurt or the pain that we experience when people say, well, what about you and what about this? And you know what? You don't even know me. We cannot let those things trivialize any longer our desperate longing to care for one another in the body of Christ. Not making war against people, but going to war against sin. And I think all too often we find ourselves rallying, coming at the people. Assumptions and judgments already made, recon not necessary. We've already condemned them. When maybe our first action is just so tell me what you were thinking in this situation so that we can walk together through it. Now, why does all of this matter tonight? Well, first it matters because we're in a body together. And some of you see sin in my life. And I know because of the amount of conversations I have on the issue, some of you are a bit fearful. We're in a lot of families together, journeying together. And when someone confesses their sin, we come alongside. And I'm so encouraged by how this body comes alongside and extends grace in confession. When people lay it on the table, hey, here's where I'm at. But listen, what about when they don't? What about when you see it? What about when you... When you can tell that they're starting to wane. You see, my friends, a healthy body of Christ believes something so deeply. They believe this. Next slide. He himself, 1 Peter 2 says, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus dealt with sin. Agree, amen? Jesus dealt with sin. So that his body, the church, would not ignore it. We're not sweeping under the rug. We're not turn our eyes to it or take advantage of grace. He dealt with sin so that we would have the freedom on this side of the execution stake to deal with sin still. And certainly in the scheme of what our transgressions have done to us in an eternity are completely finished at the work of the cross. It's only by the death and resurrection of Jesus that has given us life. But you know the chance that we have now is to tell the world and tell one another, we still believe this. We still believe that he has dealt with sin. And so because of that, we're not going to ignore it. We're not. We're also not going to hate people. 
people also aren't just going to become projects. We're not just going to go to war. We're not going to take up arms. We're not going to grab our Bibles and start smacking people across the face. We, led by the Spirit of God, believing in the fact that sin has been dealt with, are going to deal with one another's sin and are going to watch freedom and are going to watch the noose come off the necks and are going to see repentance and are going to get to watch the kindness of God draw his brothers and sisters in their hurts and weariness back to himself. Church, do you understand the opportunity we are missing in rebuke? We need not in this culture of affirmation, be afraid to say the hard things. Because when we say the hard things, it's only one more way to point to the throne of God. It's only one more way to say, I am incapable of changing you, but He can. I can't deal with your sin, but He has. Let's stand together. I'm praying tonight, emboldened by the Spirit inside of us as the church, that we would learn a new way. That we would learn a new way to be in relationship with each other. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us care so much about the sanctification of our brothers and sisters, that we would have the courage through your spirit to speak the truth in love and with gentleness. That we would not grow weary in doing what is good. That those who have turned their back on us because of our challenge, God, that they would not make us downtrodden. Instead, we would be all the more emboldened. So free us tonight from the cling of sin and help us, God, run to you. Draw us by your kindness back to yourself and embolden us to run to your throne together.